You know, each of us have dreams. We have nightmares. Um, I think we're all familiar with bad dreams. Children sometimes dream that they're being chased by some sort of a monster that they really can't see. It's kind of a blurry, fuzzy, whatever it is, and they can't, they can't run. In fact, they may not even be able to crawl to get away from it. I've often wondered about that and thought that certain dreams are so typical that it might be that that's going back to the very time when they had this bright light shining in their face when they're first born. And they see this monster, this doctor, whatever it is, but he's kind of blurry. And uh, I've wondered if that goes all the way back there. Because at different stages in our life, we have different kinds of dreams. I know that as a university student, uh, I had this dream, even after uh, college, that I had a class that I hadn't been to all semester. I had a book about 1,400 pages long that I haven't cracked and I'm trying to find the class, can't find it, because I've got to be there for the final exam, and that's going to determine whether I pass or not. And I've talked to others who have had similar dreams as that, or they can't find their locker where their books are all locked up. So we have dreams that reflect our day-to-day living. I remember when I worked in the flower fields, we used to call it flower fields out in Lompoc, California, cauliflower, uh, lettuce, and there were some flowers as well that I could lay down at night and uh, all I'd see is rows. After, you know, ten hours of hoeing lettuce, that's all you see all night long is ten rows of, or long rows of uh, lettuce. I had a dream the other night that I was in services. And it was at the Feast of Tabernacles and Dr. Meredith was sitting back someplace toward the end of this first section when waiting for services to begin and I was song leading. And I was looking through the books because I hadn't prepared them in advance. And I'm looking through the book looking for some hymns that I could recognize, and I didn't recognize any of the hymns. And we're already a half hour late. And uh, finally I realized that it wasn't a hymn book, but it was a dictionary that I had. <laughs> I remember a minister one time telling a dream. It was a nightmare. It was uh, in Squaw Valley, California, at the Feast of Tabernacles, 1964 or 65. I don't remember. It was one of those two years. And he dreamed that the resurrection was taking place, and everybody was lifting off the ground, and he was still standing there. And he talked about how he started waving his arms, flapping his arms like a bird trying to get off the ground, and he couldn't. And sadly, that minister did fall away, and although it's God's decision what happens, but one wonders if that certainly wasn't a premonition, I don't think, but that might be a dream that or a nightmare that will come true for that individual. You know, sometimes we wonder, are we going to make it into the kingdom of God? In my early years in the church, I know that I worried about that a lot. A lot more than perhaps I should have, because God doesn't want us to be fearful. And there's no reason for us to be fearful, and and yet, at the same time, we need to be sober-minded and have the right kind of fear and recognition that, yes, we can fall away. And when we look around and we see how many over the years have fallen away, 
It's really shocking and it's, it's very sad to see that. We had over 4,000 baptisms. But you wonder how many of those. And I know that some of those did fall away. And others that were there coming out of uh, worldwide and were with us for a while fell away. Sometimes other groups, sometimes to religion altogether. And then we've had a number of people die. We probably lose 150, 200 people every year just from death. And over 10 years, that's, you know, quite a few people, a couple thousand people. But it is good, and it is encouraging that God is calling people. And yet we have to recognize that many people have fallen away down through time. Tens of thousands of people that were once in the worldwide church of God are going nowhere. Unless it's back to the Protestant or Messianic church or someplace that is really not a church of God at all. And we, we see that many have fallen away that way. So today we're going to look at the meaning of these days that we're beginning right now and look at seven warnings that God gives us so that we can make it into the promised land, the land that God has promised us, the city on the hill, the city that Abraham or Moses was looking for, the promised land that the children of Israel were hoping to go into, but a much greater promised land than what they had. We'll begin with recognition of what we're here today for, back in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I know we have read this so many times, but it is important that we are reminded that this is a commanded assembly. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The Feast of the Eternal. These are not man's feasts. These are not Moses' feasts. These are God's feasts, the Eternal's feasts. And then he shows that they are to be proclaimed to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. The first one he mentions is the weekly Sabbath. That's a feast as well. Then in verse 4, these are the feasts of the Eternal, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Not every week, but at their appointed times through the year. We call them annual feasts, annual Sabbaths. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight, at the beginning of the day, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Eternal. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. That's the command that we have there. And the first day is to be a holy convocation, verse 7. And then, as we read in verse uh, 8, the latter part of it, the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work on it. So this was the command. This was not Moses' feast, but God's feast that he is proclaiming here, or that we are to proclaim in their appointed times. The New Testament explains the meaning of this Feast of Unleavened Bread. In so many words, we find the use of leaven showing us one definition of leaven, which is sin. We also recognize that the kingdom of God was likened to a measure of leaven in 
uh, a small portion of it in a loaf of bread expanding. And so it has been used in a positive sense in the New Testament as well, but mostly it's used in a negative sense. For example, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew 16 and verse 6, Jesus said to them, Matthew 16, 6, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the disciples reasoned amongst themselves, we must have forgotten bread. They always took the literal meaning instead of the significance that Christ was trying to get across to them. And so he explained that they were of little faith. Couldn't they remember the time that he had uh, multiplied the loaves on more than one occasion. And then verse 11, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That leaven that puffed up. And how often is it that intellectualism puffs up? I don't care if one is a doctor, a lawyer, even ministers. It seems like the first class you take in university is Arrogance 101. It seems to puff people up. Now, it doesn't mean that education is wrong, but we have to understand that it doesn't make us better than someone else. Uh, I used to explain about the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody wanted to be a uh, an usher. And we actually had, the first year I was over ushering in Chattanooga, we had over 100 ushers. But we actually had, I think it was 104, and we had about 110 show up. Everybody wanted to be an usher, but when it came to other duties, nobody wanted to show up. I say nobody. About a third of the people didn't show up. We had something called the vomit detail because people do, when you have a large number of people, sometimes people get sick, they get hot, and all of a sudden, there it is, and it's quite a mess. And so you have to have somebody that's got this stuff, looks like sawdust, and you throw it down on it, and then you sweep it up, and it kills the odor, and it just cleans it up very quickly, and so forth. And so we we had people for that, but most of those people didn't show up. They didn't particularly like the duty they had been assigned. Now, I, I gave the example of how important everything is, and I said, when you're holding services, who is the most important person in the room? Like right now, who's the most important person? Well, some might think the speaker. But if that kid sitting next to you throws up, the most important person is going to be the one that cleans it up real quick. That person suddenly becomes extremely important. And... After that, we made the ushers, that part of their detail. We gave them a little bucket as well. And it worked out pretty well. But everything, you know, every every job seems to carry with it its own vanity. And for some reason, people liked the idea of being an usher and showing people around, but they didn't want to do the dirty work. Well, maybe the church isn't that way anymore. I don't know. But there's a lot of intellectual vanity or just vanity of prestige, of job, or something like that. 
And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all puffed up over their doctrine. And in God's church, we've had people who have gotten puffed up because they know the truth. They know about the Sabbath. They know about the holy days. They know that we're not going to fry in hell forever and ever, and we're not going to go and play string music up in heaven. Although it does talk about harps, uh, as Mr. Ames always points out to Dr. Meredith, it does talk about harps in the book of Revelation there. But we come to a new knowledge and we can become very puffed up. And he says here, don't be like them or beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He wasn't just saying, watch out for them, but make sure that you don't follow in their example. Make sure that that leaven doesn't infect you, that it doesn't spread to you. We also read in Luke, the 12th chapter, in connection with this, Luke 12, verse 1, In the meantime, when all the multitude, innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one upon the other, he began to say to the disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Because they loved the doctrines they had, and yet we know that they didn't obey God. There was a lot of hypocrisy in it, and when you read the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we see that Jesus called them hypocrites time and time again for the way that they lived and the things they did and their desire to be first and foremost and, and the seats of in the temple or wherever it was that they wanted to claim. He called them hypocrites. When we look at 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, we find that the book of 1 Corinthians, or the letter of 1 Corinthians, is very much related to the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. We read from the 11th chapter extensively, leading up to the Passover, but on Passover night, we read from about verse 23 through most of the rest of the end of that chapter, because Paul was rehearsing to them how the Passover was to be kept, because they were not keeping the Passover properly. Some were getting drunk, some were going hungry and different things. There were all kinds of problems there in Corinth, and so he corrected them for that. We see that that must have taken place, or the letter must have been written shortly after Passover. In the 8th chapter, we could also read in verse 1, where it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. So we see that term of being puffed up. And it's an unusual term, unusual expression, not found, I think, only one other place outside of the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. I might be a second one, but I think there's only one. I don't remember where that was right off. You can look it up in a concordance. But here in 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, And verse 6, it says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. So he said, don't be puffed up. He could have said, don't be arrogant, don't be cocky. He could have said all kinds of things, but he used the expression puffed up. 
Now, puffing up is what happens when you put yeast or some other form of leavening agent in a lump of dough. It causes it to be puffed up. It creates a, a gas within there working on the carbohydrates and the sugars and turns them into carbon dioxide and it creates these little bubbles. And so when you have leavened bread, it has lots of little bubbles, especially if you make homemade whole wheat bread. You can see those bubbles. They get pretty good sized. And when you break it, it's like Velcro because they all have little sharp points. And so they stick in carpet and they stick everywhere and it's hard to get them out. So when we clean the leaven out of our homes, we we have to work at it. And it's amazing how bread and leavening products are everywhere, it seems. And they're places that we wouldn't think. It's a good thing that I didn't grow up keeping the days of unleavened bread because my mother was a piano teacher. And she wanted me to play the piano and I wanted to play baseball. And so there were times when I wouldn't be able to eat until I practiced the piano. And I'd be quite stubborn about it. And so I I learned that I could take that white bread and I could put it in my play box someplace. And I had bread stuffed everywhere in my room where I I could survive. (laughs) And when that white bread gets dry, it, it lasts forever. But it does crumble quite a bit. And uh, it was everywhere in, our, in my room. Leaven is, uh, is something that's difficult to get out. But it is interesting here that he used the term puffed up. And then down in verse 18, he says, Now some of you are puffed up, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, here it is again, but the power. And so we find that he used this term uh, three times in the book of, uh, or the, the fourth chapter. And then when we get to chapter five, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, in other words, his stepmother. And you are puffed up, here we go again, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in the Spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done uh, such a deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 6, he says, your glorying, your pride, your feeling good about yourself, your bragging is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We see here very clearly that he's using terms that apply to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it will become very explicit here because he says, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, the reason we are to do this because Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed or slaughtered for us. 
And then he tells the Gentiles at Corinth, therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast. Now, he wasn't talking about Christmas. He wasn't talking about Easter. And he wasn't talking about St. Valentine's Day or Halloween. He was talking about a feast that involves leaven and unleaven. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So very clearly here, he's talking about spiritual characteristics to leavening and to unleavening. And he says we are to keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the physical leaven, but not with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now, malice is what goes on in the mind. And wickedness, we might say, are the actions, the wicked actions that we perform. So we are to be clean in mind and body. And he says we are to replace them with the unleavened bread of sincerity. That's what is in the mind and truth. And we might think, well, truth is in the mind as well. But remember what we read in 1 John, the first chapter. I'll just turn over there, 1 John 1 and verse 6. Read this in the Bible study this last week. 1 John 1, 6. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here he uses an expression of practicing or living or you might say walking in truth, doing truth. And it is interesting that back in the book of John again, the Gospel of John, the third chapter, and verse 20, he says, Everyone practicing evil hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, it's exactly the same expression, is found in 1 John 1, verse 6, where it says, Practice the truth. Here it says, He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that uh, that uh, they have been done in God. And so truth is something that we must live. And this becomes very important because the children of Israel did not walk in truth. They did not do truth. It may have been an intellectual exercise for them, but they failed and reaching the promised land because they did not walk in truth. They did not do the truth. And in light of this, Paul gives us six warnings in the book of Corinthians of paths to avoid. Paths that we should avoid. We might say leavened paths that we should avoid. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And verse 1, and the first warning that he gives us is found in the first five verses. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He says, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So when they walked through the sea, the Red Sea, it was a type of baptism. Now, we've been baptized, those of us who are old enough, those of us who have been around long enough to make that decision. We've been baptized, but they were all baptized. They were baptized under Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. 
And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, when we speak of the God of the Old Testament, here's a clear statement that the God of the Old Testament was the one who became Jesus Christ. That's why when Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 others sat down and ate a meal at the end of the instructions for the Old Covenant, it says they saw God. And yet the New Testament tells us that no man has seen God at any time. So that the one that they saw, the member of the God family they saw, was none other than the one who became Jesus Christ. As we see here, the rock that followed them was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So the first warning that we are given here is not to think because we are baptized, we have it made. How many people have been baptized who have fallen away over the years? And I don't know how many people I've heard say something to the effect that, well, I don't care if everybody leaves, I'm not going to. I'm going to stay with it. Or I'll be the last to turn out the lights, so to speak. And yet many of those people have fallen away. People who have seen miracles in many cases had miracles performed on them, miraculous healings, dramatic healings, and some of those have fallen away. So the first warning is that we should not take for granted the fact that we've been baptized. We have something to do. In fact, in verse um, 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So just because we're baptized, we should not consider ourselves to have apprehended or attained the goal that we're, we're striving for. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6, it gives us another warning. It says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So there was an example of what the children of Israel did and lusting after evil things, and we are warned here not to do the same thing that they did. In Numbers, the 11th chapter, Numbers 11, and we'll be coming back here to 1 Corinthians, so you may want to put a piece of paper or something in there, a marker. But Numbers 11, and we'll begin in verse 4. It says, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the, uh, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So God gave them special food. I imagine that manna was so perfectly balanced in terms of nutrition that you couldn't find a more perfectly balanced food. I'm sure there were other things along the way that they may have eaten. They had flocks and herds, so they may have had some dairy products. They may have had, uh, you know, cheese and such things as that and and uh, perhaps killed a chicken or two along the way. Uh, they, but... Manna was their, their mainstay. 
and they were looking for melons and leeks and cucumbers. Verse 7, Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of bedelium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it in millstones or beat it in a mortar, uh, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. Now that sounds pretty good to me, frankly. Pastry prepared with oil or butter or something like that. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. So we see that the children of Israel were given this manna, but um, they complained. It says, Moses heard the people, verse 10, weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Eternal, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? You ever had somebody mad at you? How about several million people all at once? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian uh, carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep over uh, all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear them, and so God gave to Moses, uh, others to help judge, to spread out the workload and to take some of the responsibility as well. Now, we find in verse 31 that a wind came up out of, from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side. Now, that was a lot of quail, huge numbers of quail. And they're small birds, easy to, uh, to clean and to cook and to eat, tasty. And the people, verse 32, stayed up all that day, all night and all the next day and gathered the quail who gathered uh, uh I'm sorry, let's see, and gathered the quail. Uh, He who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the ground or the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Eternal was aroused against the people, and the Eternal struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of the place Kibroth Hattavah. And the reason was because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. This was an unnatural craving for meat to eat. They were lusting after them. As we're warned back there in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, not to lust as they did. Let's notice that it wasn't just the the quail, it wasn't that the quail were evil things, but the way that they were looking on them became evil. Notice verse 4 again. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept and said, Who will give us meat to eat? 
And then they looked back into Egypt. And so they were, in a sense, lusting for the time or coveting the opportunity of going back to Egypt, back from where they came, which that definitely was evil. Notice also in verse 18, it says, Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Eternal, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with, with us in Egypt. In other words, they were looking back to Egypt. That was the problem, uh, among other things, the intense craving, but wanting to go back to Egypt. Therefore, the Eternal will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have despised the Eternal who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? That was the problem. And they were looking back there. So the first one that we saw was don't think that you've got it made just because you've been baptized. Secondarily, not to lust or covet. Now back in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter again, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 7, we'll see the third warning that we're given here. It says, Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We have a very good sermon online by Mr. Rod McNair on, uh, I forget exactly the title, but it has to do with idolatry and the kind of idols that we have in our heart. His father had given a sermon on that many years ago, Idols of the Heart. And we find that idols aren't just things that we look at or objects that we have, but it's what's in our heart. What are we looking to, to satisfy us, to to be the all, to end all? Or to flee idolatry. Now, when we think about it, and I won't go into all the scriptures that we could turn to on idolatry, but I'd like to just mention a couple of things here. Um, when we look at idols, they're not always idols that we necessarily bow down to. But oftentimes when we come out of the religions of this world, we bring with it a lot of baggage. I've recalled a number of times over the years where we visit somebody that's brand new, and they have a lot of religious art. Perhaps the picture of the disciples at the Last Supper with a long-haired Jesus in the middle and the disciples around and one of them leaning on him. And it's a very false picture because they didn't sit at a table as we do today, but they were much lower to the ground and leaning on one elbow and reaching out. And when you read about how John leaned back on Christ's bosom, it was much more natural when you understand that they were reclining there with their feet back and it was something of just leaning back on his his uh, breast and asking him, you know, who who is it, Lord? It wasn't some sort of a, an effeminate thing that 
was going on there. It was more natural when you understand the arrangement at the table. But a lot of religious art gives a wrong impression. I know that even with the telecast, we have to watch and we need to be very careful that we don't use images, uh, pictures of, of things that are not correct. Of the apostles sometimes, I know we have used that and we've got to make sure we don't allow that to, to get through. With a, you know, the sun symbol, uh, not, not exactly halo, but the big sun symbol over them. And that's not the way that they looked. And this comes right out of idolatry and false religion. Some people have praying hands. I don't know if any of you do, but I, I've seen those over the years. And, and you ask, why? What, what is that about? And so much of it is a mood, an attitude that is presented out of false Christianity. People have crosses, which if you look at the History of the cross is not a very good thing. Sometimes people have angels. I know that we had in our family a, a, a statue, and it had wings on these these uh, women. And uh, we got rid of it because it was it was not looking like the angels that we read of in the Bible. These didn't look very scary. But when I read of somebody coming across an angel in the Bible, they usually fell down their face terrified. We don't know exactly what they look like, but I can assure you that the kinds of things that we have today that represent the angels are not what we find in the Scripture. So we need to be careful about those things. As mentioned, we have sermons on the idols of the heart. I'd like to read a little bit from Mr. Armstrong's autobiography and his personal experience and his coming to conversion. And he talks about idols in this context. And I think it's very helpful for us to, uh, to look at his experience. He says, repentance, the repentance required as a condition to being truly converted by receiving God's Holy Spirit is something far different than most people suppose. It is infinitely more than merely seeing God's truth or some of it and being good enough to embrace and accept it. It is something altogether different from merely agreeing with certain doctrines. Too many people saw the truth, and they accepted the truth. But when it came to having their minds and their hearts cleansed, there was something missing. He says, whoever you are, you have or have had an idol. Now, do we think that we are an exception to that? We either have or have had an idol. And I think he's correct when you really understand what he's saying. You have had another God before the true living almighty God. It might be your hobby or your habitual pastime. It might be your husband or wife or child or children. How many times people will put a mate before God? If one mate leaves the church, the other one goes with them. I remember 
some years ago when church got off track, somebody asked a lady who had been ordained a deaconess, what what are you going to do? And she said, well, I don't know. It depends on what my, my boys do. Depends on what my children do. So often people have as their idol a family member or members. It might be your job. How many times people are unwilling to give up a job for the truth? There were ministers in the worldwide church, no doubt, that were unwilling to give up their job. And they were willing to compromise the truth. I don't know which ones. I just know out of the sheer number that there were and things that I'd heard that there were those who had so many mouths to feed and they they didn't want to leave. Even though they knew what they were hearing was not correct. It might be your job. It might be your own vanity. How many people worship themselves? I remember going to a a club, a uh, exercise club, and there were a couple gals that were in the club there, and they had just, I guess you might think, perfect bodies. Somebody told me, one of the fellows in the locker room said that they, they would actually measure every, you know, their legs, their calves, their arms, and if anything got too big from the exercise, they'd lay off that and put their emphasis someplace else because they wanted to have a perfect body. And I don't know how many hours they spent at the gym, but it was a lot. And I'm thinking, what a what a waste of time. Get real. Uh, there are things that are more important, but that's what, what they wanted. Very often it is the opinion of your friends, your family, your group, or your social or business contacts. But whatever it is, that idol must first be crushed, smashed. It must be literally torn out of your mind, even though it hurts more than having all your teeth pulled out and perhaps a jawbone. I don't believe that many people experience this painlessly. I don't know of any anesthetic that will render it pleasurable. Usually it seems like something more excruciating than the agony of death by the cruelest torture. Now, I had an idol. This is Mr. Armstrong talking here. My whole mind and heart was set on that idol. I had worked hard night and day for that false god. My false objective was the intense desire, the desperate, driving, overpowering ambition to become successful in the eyes of important businessmen, to be considered by them as outstandingly important in the business world, to achieve status. I did not have a love for money or as such, but uh, as it says, after establishing my publisher's representative business in Chicago, I aspired every day to own or build one of the finest and largest homes in the North Shore aristocratic suburb of Winnetka, with large, spacious grounds constituting an ever or an important appearing estate. I wanted to be considered important by the important. Now he talks here about the fact that. God had to smash that idol, and he took so much away from him. And as he pointed out, he said, the bigger they come, the saying is, the harder they fall. And all this swelled-up ego came crashing down, down, down. I had been so big, so important in my own sight, there was no room left for God. But God whittled self-righteous Job down to size. God drove stuttering 
King Nebuchadnezzar out to eat grass with the beasts. God struck down Saul with blindness, changed his direction, and then his name to Paul. And God was certainly able to knock me down off my imaginary high perch again and again and again. I had to come to realize that all this self-importance was pure illusion. I was brought down to earth and reality with a thud. Instead of ego, vanity, and self-importance, God fed me for 28 long years on the raw and scanty diet of humiliation and poverty. Had God merely let me suffer financial reverses, even to the point of experiencing real hunger for short periods of a few, a few weeks, I would have bounded back and quickly set back up my idol to serve again. Had God let me suffer that kind of humiliation and poverty even for a period of a year or even six or seven years, I probably would have resumed the same sense of ego once back on my financial feet. So he points out here that God had to smash that, get rid of it. Now, if he can say that, in all honesty, what about the rest of us? Have we examined ourselves carefully enough to find out what it is that we are putting before God? Maybe it's in the past. Maybe it's right now. But we need to find out what that is, make sure that we don't practice idolatry. It says here, do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it says, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And when they were playing, it was uh, it was not a very nice kind of play. That when you read the account there, and that leads right into verse eight. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day twenty three thousand fell. Sexual immorality. Let's go back to Numbers, the twenty fifth chapter. And this is a warning, and I think it's a special warning for us today. Not that other times haven't had the same problem. When you look at the Corinthians, you see that they had plenty of problems. When you look at the city of Pompeii, uh, if you ever have the chance to go there, it's very interesting. Quite a modern city. We think we're so modern today, but they had uh, lead pipes for... uh, Water coming off of uh, Mount uh, Vesuvius there. I always get Vesuvius and Etna mixed up, but I think it's Vesuvius. Um, they had uh, they had water supply. Uh, the lead came from Britain. Uh, they they know that, so that's quite a long trek. They got things around back and forth in those days. Of course, lead was poisonous and it slowly poisoned the people. But they had one-way streets. Not like we have a one-way street sign, but they had an ox cart showing which direction it could go. Their streets had places where, when it was wet, you could actually walk over the top of certain rocks. They had white stones, very white uh, polished stones that were put in the street so that when the moon would shine off of, would, would reflect off of them, you'd see where the street is. We, we have reflectors in our roads today. They had them then. They didn't have headlamps, we don't think, but the moon or the the night sky sometimes would reflect off of those white stones. Quite a modern city in many different ways. And yet it was destroyed. They had, I think it was 26 or 28 houses of prostitution in that city. And it wasn't hard to find them because you just look there and 
and the stone that was carved out. Uh, I won't describe it, but uh, it, you know, they they showed us when we went through there. These were houses of prostitution. So sexual immorality has been around a long time. In fact, it goes all the way back to the time of the Israelites and even before that, no doubt. But here we read in the 25th chapter, verse 1, Israel remained at Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their, their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Eternal was aroused against Israel. As was so often the case, their religious observances were tied up with festivals and uh, sexual immorality. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Eternal out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Eternal may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, saw the, uh, saw the son of Aaron, the priest, uh, well, Eleazar was the son of uh, Eleazar, the, the priest, uh, he saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. And it says here that 24,000 died. The other account says 23,000, but it says there in 1 Corinthians in one day, a thousand must have died the next day. But they were involved in sexual immorality, as we read from other scriptures, that this is what happened. They, they worshiped the idols or got involved with that with the women of Moab, as Baal, I'm sorry, Balaam had counseled. Uh, Balak to have them do, and it brought disaster upon Israel. Flee sexual immorality. We could turn over to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, because we live in a world today where sexual immorality is just the norm. It's the norm for so many. And our young people and sometimes older people get caught up in that, and they think, oh, it's, well, everybody's doing it, must be all right. And we feed on all the wrong things, movies and everything like that, that portray sex as, as something that is just recreational for anybody. And they get caught up in it. He says, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. People say well, the Bible doesn't condemn, condemn homosexuality. Either they haven't read it or they're dishonest. I know of another conclusion you could come to. Most of them are just plain dishonest. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, but some were some of you. But notice how many of those sins, fornication, adultery, homosexuals, sodomites, all involve sexual sins. And then over in verse 18, 
I won't read the whole thing here, but it says flee sexual immorality. Flee. Get away from it. Some of the children of Israel fell because they were not walking in the right path. And so our fourth warning is flee sexual immorality. Avoid that sin. The fifth one is don't tempt Christ. Don't test or tempt Christ. Notice in verse uh, 9 of 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 9, it says, Nor let us tempt, or as Martin says, test Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So let's look and see what happened there. Well, let's first of all go to the first time when they tested Christ because he was the God that was with them, and that's in Exodus 17. We'll start in verse 1. They haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai yet. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Eternal, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended, Notice, they contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the eternal? They they weren't just murmuring. They were actually confronting Moses and God. And notice what it says here down in verse 7. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted or tested the eternal, saying, is the eternal among us or not? After all that had happened, the killing of the firstborn, which was a tenth of ten plagues, and then the opening up of the Red Sea and walking through, and the Egyptians drowning in the sea, following that. After all of that, They're still asking the question, is God with us? It's a warning for us. Because sometimes people just give up and they quit because they wonder, well, is God with us? Is God here? Is God there? I, I, I don't understand it, but, and I, and I really honestly don't want to understand it because I don't want to have to go through it. But people are miraculously healed and they, Throw it all in. Throw in the towel. Give up. It must wonder, is God working here? Miracles do not save. And that perhaps is a, um, a lesson that we could learn from all of this as well. But Numbers 12, I'm sorry, Numbers 20. Numbers 20. And verse 10. It says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Not getting all the context here. I think you're familiar with this. Can remember? He says, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Verse 12, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me 
in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah. Now as your margin has it, contention, the water of contention. Let's take a look at another scripture, the next chapter, the 21st chapter. Verse 4. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Eternal sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So when you go back there to 1 Corinthians, once again, 1 Corinthians 10, you see that this experience here in chapter 21 is exactly what he is speaking of there. He says, nor let us tempt or test Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. They were questioning whether God was amongst them. They tested him. The sixth temptation is verse 10. It says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Well, you'll see a a close connection in all this. It overlaps to some degree, doesn't it? Because it was complaining. But sometimes it was just murmuring amongst themselves. Sometimes it was murmuring before Moses himself, contending with Moses directly. But we find that this was a common problem. And they murmured and complained constantly. Notice back in Exodus, the 16th chapter. And I think that this is something that all of us should note very carefully. Are we complainers? It doesn't necessarily mean that you are contending with a minister or a deacon or your your husband or your boss or anybody in that sense, but just being a complainer, constantly finding fault, always negative. So as they journeyed from Elam, this is verse 1, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, they complained against them. They may not have confronted them directly, but they complained. They sat back and judged Moses and Aaron, and they murmured, murmur, murmur, murmur. Notice in the 14th chapter of Numbers, Numbers 14 and verse 26. The Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, in other words, he overheard these things. Say to them, as I live, says the Eternal, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. Notice that this is God. God had heard what they were saying. The carcasses of you who have complained against me. 
shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, have you ever noticed that, how people... Uh, when they, they have a complaint, oftentimes they, they don't say, well, it, it's okay with me, but I don't like this, you know, because of my kids, or I don't like it because of somebody else, or it, it's not treating the, the elderly fairly, or somebody else, in other words, they deflect it. Uh, it they, they, they don't want to say, well, it, it's because it bothers me, but I just don't like it because of somebody else being afflicted. Well, the children of Israel... We're always saying that you've brought us and our little ones out to die in the wilderness. Oh, we're okay. We understand life comes an end, but our children. He said, but your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection." says, I, the Eternal, verse 35, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. And he said that they would die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land um, and brought the bad report, says, verse 37, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Eternal. So neither are we to complain or murmur, or be contentious. So that's our sixth one. Now, I said at the beginning that there are seven warnings that are found uh, concerning the children of Israel. Seven paths that we are not to walk, several things that we're not to do, truths that we're, uh, we're, we're to live the truth, not these. In Hebrews, the third chapter, we find the seventh one, and I suppose there could be others, but certainly this is... Uh, clearly stated in the context of the children of Israel going into the promised land. And when we think of the days of unleavened bread, we our minds just automatically go back to that time when they didn't have leavening for seven days when they left until they came through the Red Sea and then they began to have leavened bread once again, but they didn't have it prior to that. Well, actually they had manna. I don't know if that was leavened or not, probably unleavened, but nevertheless... They went for seven days without leavening. And here we find in Hebrews, the third chapter, that Paul gives us a warning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That was Meribah. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested that's Manasseh, or Massa. That comes from Exodus 17:7, Meribah and Massa. When your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, 
Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They would not enter the promised land. These are reasons why people will be kept out of the kingdom. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. It can look good on the spur of the moment, but it always has a penalty. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Who was it that rebelled against God? Indeed, it was not, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? All those people who have been baptized? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? And then it sums it up in verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. That was what kind of held up everything there. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe what he said. They didn't believe that he could take care of them. They went several days in the wilderness without food or water, and they got panicky. They didn't believe. This is why over in the 11th chapter, in verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is important. So we see that that really underlies everything. And that's a seventh warning of things not to do. Now, these are the seven warnings found in, uh, or the, found in the book of Corinthians and the book of Hebrews. Faith is behind it all, as I said. You know, there's a positive side to all of this. There's a positive side. It isn't all negative. God lovingly warns us of dangers that we could fall into. I don't know if you've ever been to a national park like Yellowstone National Park. You ever go to Yellowstone, there are signs up different places that say, stay on the path, don't go off the path, don't go over here. And the reason is because Underneath Yellowstone is a giant mass of molten rock, and it's heating things up. And so there are places where the water is hot enough to uh, cook you, literally, and they don't want you to step in certain places where you might fall through. So they have warnings like that. Now a little closer to home, we have... Uh, Smoky Mountain National Park, and I'm sure they have warnings not to feed the bears. Uh, most places tell you not to feed the bears or feed any of the wild animals because uh, they can get too friendly and uh, they're pretty strong, and if they are threatened in any way, uh, there's a problem. In fact, you're not to get out of your, your, your vehicles to take pictures of these wild animals. I remember going to Yellowstone. One of my foolish things that I did, we saw 
couple of elk out in the middle of a field and, and I walked out there as closest from here to that, that door over there from a big elk in the middle of a field to take a picture of it. That was not the thing to do. Now, it was a friendly elk, thankfully, uh, but it was, you know, had horns and everything like that. I don't, th- I don't even know where the picture is anymore, but that was not the thing to do. They, they warn you about things like that, but when you're a teenager, sometimes you know better than people who actually know something. And so they have these warnings to protect us. Yet every year, there are people who violate those warnings, and they, you know, a few suffer a very painful or final penalty for doing so. In 1 Corinthians, once again, we see that God gives us these warnings, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. This is God's love. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. Notice verse 6 again. It says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then it goes on with these other warnings. These were examples. He allowed this to happen to a whole generation of several million people to write in stone or write, however you want to put it, put it in writing of what not to do. And experience can be a wonderful teacher if it's the experience of someone else. It's not a good teacher for you or for me. I mean, it may be a teacher, but it's not the best teacher. The best teacher is to learn from others' mistakes. And so he gave us those as an example. Now he says, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. All of these temptations are common to all of us. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way, make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And then he gives the warning again against idolatry. So God is a loving God. He wants us to know that there is such a thing as spiritual leaven in this world. That the physical leaven that we put out is all around us. And if we've been in the church any length of time, we've probably all made a mistake of eating something leavened during the days of unleavened bread. If I ask for a show of hands, I'm sure that many hands would go up. I'd be the first one. You find yourself halfway through a donut, and you wonder, oh, whoa. (laughs) Or you take a big bite, and you're around people, and you realize before you've swallowed it, what do I do with this now? (laughs) We do that, don't we? But God wants us to know that sin is that way. We have to be vigilant day and night. We have to be aware of the dangers that are out there. We've been called to eternal life in the family of God. That's a promised land far greater than Israel was promised. But we must prove ourselves worthy. Now, when I say prove ourselves worthy, I'm not saying that we can work our way into the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that we can be righteous enough. We we know that. Passover adequately demonstrates our need for a Savior. 
But unleavened bread shows that we have our part to play in this drama. That God didn't just do it all for us. We have our part. We must repent of sin. We must put the leaven out. And we must drink in or eat every day of the unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth, of the mind and of our actions. We're given fair warning of dangers that lurk about us. God has done his part, and he continues to do his part. The only question is whether we will do our part. I'd like to close with just one final scripture in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 31 and 32. I'll just read these in closing. Romans 8, 31 and 32. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, which we just celebrated that fact a couple nights ago, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So let's take these warnings seriously and avoid the leavened path that Israel walked.